0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody from a rather wet San Francisco on September the 19th. The weather has been behaving peculiarly even for the Bay Area, which of course is bound up in our climate crisis it's supposed to be climate week this week uh, beginning on the 19th of september i'm not entirely sure what that means um certainly the news isn't very good the guardian today leads with a, a story that if um if all the fossil fuel reserves in the world were burnt it would admit 3.5 trillion tons of greenhouse gas it's a uh, Deeply apocalyptic notion. Um, quoting them, um, uh, it it would it would it would emit more planet heating emissions than have occurred since the Industrial Revolution. Very chilling, and of course, in keeping with a number of shows we've done recently, in particular with Bill McGuire, a climate activist, a couple of weeks ago who argued on the show that we've only got 20 months, uh, not 20, 90 months left to save the planet, not much more than eight years. Uh, he has a new book out, Hothouse Earth, an Inhabitant's Guide. Uh, we're back to disturbing, depressing narratives, although perhaps not quite as apocalyptic as Bill Maguire. Uh, my guest on the show today, Lewis H. Ziska, who teaches at Columbia University, has a new book out entitled Greenhouse Planet, how rising CO2 changes plants and life as we know it. And uh, Lewis is joining us from his office at Columbia University. Uh, Lewis, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with uh, Bill Maguire's work? No, I'm not. Uh, But when it comes to this deeply uh, apocalyptic view of people like Maguire, what's your sense? Do you share that unless we aggressively and immediately confront our climate crisis today
1: i I think we need to confront the climate crisis but i'm very very reluctant to assign a particular time frame for that in the sense that we're all going to die in two years or 10 years um humanity will as overall survive whether civilization does or not is really more of an open question And what I was writing about was not so much the climate aspect, that's important, obviously. But what I was looking at is what the rise in carbon dioxide does of and by itself. It affects all plant life as we know it. And civilization, humanity, all animals depend on what plants do. Um, They provide oxygen, they provide rain, they provide food, they provide medicine, they provide clothes, they provide building materials. Well, outside of that, they're really not important, right? Um, So when you change what plants do and they're being changed of and by themselves with the increase, both the recent increase and the projected increase in CO2. And while I understand there's a merited focus on, on polar bears and rising sea levels and apocalyptic issues, It's also important to recognize what's happening with plant biology. So some of the things we see, for example, are the increase in carbon dioxide related to the nutritional value of the foods that you consume. We see changes in plant-based medicine and how that might be impacted by the rise in CO2. Um, We see changes in pesticide use and how much more pesticides uh, will be affected. Um, we see changes in narcotics, as you're showing on the screen. We yeah. have, quote, quote, a war on drugs. Well, if you're changing the climate and you're changing the amount of carbon dioxide, and we know that carbon dioxide stimulates um, wild poppy and other narcotic plants, wouldn't you want to know what that stimulation is? Where are they going to be growing in the future? How much more uh, opioids they might produce?
0: Uh, Lewis, I want to get into the details, but let's address the big issue, uh, mm-hmm. this carbon dioxide issue co2 explain what it is and why um, the uh, the chart of atmospheric carbon dioxide has been rising so dramatically for people watching since 1960 over the last 60 years
1: it isn't complicated basically in order to provide fuel and energy you have to burn a carbon source you take carbon whether it comes from coal or oil or natural gas and you burn it with is another way of saying you oxidize it. You provide oxygen for the carbon. Carbon is an energy rich material. When you burn it, you get energy. But you also get carbon dioxide. It's a byproduct. Now, the increase in carbon dioxide has been shown. You can look up your, your physics manual, and it'll tell you that it absorbs in the infrared or heat part of the spectrum. Nobody disputes that. So as you add more carbon dioxide to the air, you're going to heat the planet. Full stop. But there's another aspect that doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And that is that CO2 is a resource necessary for plants to grow. You all learned this back in junior high biology. What do plants need to grow? They need light, they need water, they need nutrients, and they need carbon dioxide. The carbon in our bodies, the carbon in all living animals comes from carbon dioxide. When you change it, and it's already gone up by 25% in my lifetime, and it's projected to go up another 50% by the end of the century. When you change it, you not only affect all of the things that you read about in the press, as far as, as you know changes that are going to occur for sea level and, and so forth, but you change all plant material, which is to say you also change all life as we know it. But that doesn't get the press because it's not as exciting, it's not as flashy, it's not as sexy as rising sea levels and and hurricanes and so forth it's not to not to dismiss those things they're important but the biology of plants is also important and that's the reason why i wrote this book one of the things that the climate denial framework has always provided is this sort of meme of co2 is plant food and isn't it wonderful and you can think about that and think well yeah i mean it is it is plant food it's going to make plants grow more But here's the thing. If I apply a resource to the earth as a whole for plants, are all plants going to respond the same? No. So what do we see? We see in agriculture that weeds perform better as the CO2 increases more than crops. If we look at natural systems, we find that invasive plants do better with more CO2 than the other plants around them we find these changes, ubiquitous changes in nutrition, we see all of the plants changing, or not all, but the, all the ones that we've looked at are changing with respect to chemistry. And that in and of itself has some profound effects on global life, including humanity. And it's worthwhile to begin to look at those effects and understand what the repercussions of those effects are going to be. And the repercussions can be anything from Looking at how much food is going to be on your plate to the quality of that food, to the ability of rising CO2 to increase resistance in herbicides and pesticides. All of these things are important, but they don't get the attention that they deserve in part because our minds are not
0: really wire to understand or appreciate what's happening with plants, well, but th- th- these issues do get the attention. Certainly, on our show, we did a show recently with George Mombiat. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, his new I book, am, yes. Regenesis: Feeding the World Without Devouring the P- Planet. Are you in sync with Mombiat in terms of this essential need to reform agriculture and the land and how? Absolutely. We Absolutely, and this is
1: and this is one of the things that we think is important because right now we have sort of an assembly line approach to how we grow our food, um, and that's really economically derived and understandably. So if I go to McDonald's and I and I you know order uh, fries and I like their fries, but if I order their fries, I'm getting one variety of potato, uh, basically russet Burbank potatoes that's great if the climate is you know, stable, but if the climate isn't stable, relying on one cultivar of potato is a disaster waiting to happen because you need that built-in diversity that nature provides in order to adapt to an uncertain climate. That isn't happening among the, the current uh, paradigm for agricultural uh, production. We rely on a handful of genetics to provide all the food that we
0: have isn't that lewis because of um certainly the, the current capitalist agricultural system especially in america of scale where you have these huge farms if you had more of a diverse agriculture you wouldn't have these problems and if you had fewer mcdonald's and more family-owned restaurants. Then also, you wouldn't have this.
1: Problem. Right, but part of the part of the diversity or lack of diversity occurs because of the mechanization of agriculture. When you have, if you're a farmer and you have 400 acres that you've got to take care of, you don't have the, the labor in order to do it. You have to have an an assembly line approach in order to um, to make any kind of production. But that overall, that particular model is the most vulnerable to climate change and to rising CO2 levels. So if just as a quick example, if I'm growing uh, soybean and carbon dioxide is going up, has gone up, will continue to go up, it isn't the soybean that's going to respond. It does respond somewhat, but it's the weeds that are growing with the soybean that are going to respond more, and they're going to be harder to take care of and they're going to be more competitive so when you change your resource it's that change that in and of itself is going to affect the bottom line when it comes to production when it comes to nutrition and these are the aspects that we want to try and look at and that's what i try to do in 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 the book greenhouse planet
0: um you, you said somewhere else that um uh, what we're going through now feels like something out of a bad sci fi movie. Uh, right. I'm not sure if it's a bad, it's certainly a scary sci fi <laughs> movie. What you're saying then is that nature, we imagine or most people imagine the impact on nature is somehow destroying it. What you're suggesting is that rising CO2 can actually result. In a different kind of nature a kind of a nature almost out of control a, a sci-fi style nightmarish nature
1: it what what are the things that we see when you add a resource like carbon dioxide to the environment is that biodiversity tends to fall what happens is that those particular plants those varieties that can respond to co2 will become dominant and as a result of that biodiversity will decline so what we see are often the uh, an invasive species like kudzu, um, which if you're from the southeast, uh, you're probably familiar with, but you may be more familiar with it uh, as a new invasive weed in places, northern places like Michigan, where it's encroaching. Um, as you change the environment, you are going to change what can grow in terms of plants, and because plants form the basis. For all ecosystems, the nature of the ecosystem itself will change.
0: It is, in its own way, uh, rather chilling, Lewis. Um, We've done a number of shows on trees, for example. We did one with Kinari Webb. She has a book out, Guardian of the Trees. Another with uh, John W. Reed on the need to. Uh, Save Our Forests. He has a new book out, Evergreen, and then one with Tony Hiss. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, why we need to, uh, if we're to rescue the planet, we need to protect half the land. Is the fix here, on top of addressing the carbon dioxide crisis, to protect the trees, the forests, the land, or are we getting it the wrong way around? There's... Again, I don't think there's a a single
1: solution to this issue. There's a lot of smaller solutions that have to be implemented going forward that take place from the ground, uh, you know, from the bottom up, and less that's happening from the top down. So to use the example of trees, one of the things that was found by a Smithsonian scientist was when you give a forest more carbon dioxide, Again, carbon dioxide is a resource. You give it more, plants will grow more. But what he found was that it wasn't the trees that grew more. It was the vines that grew more. And vines can tend to overwhelm the system and actually destroy the forest by topping over the trees and keeping them shaded. Um, perhaps one of the best known work of this kind, looking at how future CO2 will affect uh, forests, was a work that or experiment that was done at the Duke uh, University forest where they gave a entire forest of loblolly pine out in the open more carbon dioxide did the trees grow more yes they did but the plant that grew the most was poison ivy so to say as often uh, climate deniers do well co2 is plant food isn't that wonderful no it's not necessarily wonderful there's much more to it than that and you have to understand what that much more is If poison ivy is the quote unquote winner with more carbon dioxide, shouldn't you know about that? Uh, If it becomes more, uh, makes a more virulent form of orishol, which is the oil that causes contact dermatitis, causes your skin to break out, shouldn't you know about that? If more carbon dioxide makes more pollen, shouldn't you know about that from an an air pollution standpoint? If more carbon dioxide uh, makes kudzu produce more volatile organic carbons, shouldn't you know about that? If more CO2 makes a stronger form of opioids, shouldn't you know about that? All of these things are interconnected, and this is not an issue that we are currently look at. It is absolutely one that will affect everyone's health, will affect not individual health, but the health of the planet.
0: And as you say, it's already out there. People aren't maybe recognizing it. You talk about the impact of climate change on pollen seasons and allergies. You've done a lot of work in this. You've also done quite a lot of work in which drugs will survive climate change and which won't. How is this already affecting our daily lives, uh, Louis? Many of us who are suffering perhaps more from uh, pollen uh, and many of us who are, of course, reliant on one kind of drug or another to survive.
1: Well, in the in the Westernized in and the industrial uh, parts of the world, it's affecting you in terms of the nutritional quality of the food that you eat. We see, for example, with rice, that both uh, the protein levels have gone down. Similar for wheat. Uh, looking at different vitamins and rice that have been adversely affected by rising CO2, uh, the pollen issue that you mentioned. Um, there's also uh, good evidence suggesting that. Uh, for pesticide use that you're going to have to rely on on more uh, or more concentrated pesticides uh, and by pesticides, I mean herbicides, those that control weeds, because weeds respond very strongly to CO2. So it takes more of the chemical to kill them. Um, So those issues related to safety, those issues related to nutrition, in addition to issues related to productivity are all part and parcel of how you are going to be affected. If you switch to going to other Um, developing countries where a lot of the drugs don't come from the corner Walgreens, they come from nature, then we also see that there are ethnopharmacology issues related to that, or more CO2 can, for example, change the chemistry of a plant that you previously had relied on for a particular ailment. Now, because of rising CO2, it's also going to affect its basic uh, active ingredient. In some cases, it may increase it, which is of course a good thing. But in some cases, it may go down. But understanding that at ethno part of it yeah. in the context of rising CO two is obviously important. It's something we're not doing anything about.
0: Lewis, what about in a in a broader meta sense, in terms of our Darwinian, um, our, 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 our 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 Darwinian struggle for survival as a species? How is it, how could you imagine all so, this affecting that?
1: let me let me try and do, do it in a plant lens as a, as a plant scientist. I'll, I'll try and describe to you an experiment that was done back in the 1950s. Um, back then, fossil fuels were cheap. Uh, gasoline was fourteen cents a gallon, hard to believe. Uh, but back in the 1950s, uh, every you know fossil fuels were were very inexpensive, and they're the basis for making fertilizer, which is a resource for plant growth, right nutrition. So there was a farmer, a corn farmer in, in Pennsylvania who said, you know what? You know, I know my weeds and my corn compete for the same resource. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide so much fertilizer that there will be no more competition and everybody will be happy. So he did. He put on tenfold the amount of recommended fertilizer onto his cornfield. What happened? His corn yields went to zero. Zero the weeds survived. Weeds not only survived, but they did much better. When you look at something as basic as weeds and crop, I have one monoculture with one genetic uh, hierarchy. I have eight to nine different weeds growing with lots of diversity. And I'm changing a resource. What's going to respond? It's going to be whatever has the greatest genetic diversity that will fit into that increased carbon dioxide, they will take that increased carbon dioxide and use it to make more seed. That's competition, that's selection, that's evolution. And in a larger sense, that's what we're looking at for the plant kingdom. Those particularly weedy species that produce tons of seed that's diverse genetically are going to be in a perfect position to take advantage of this this, this increased resource, much as if the weeds back in that farmer's field in the 1950s We're in a perfect position to take advantage of that additional fertilizer.
0: So, What are we going to do? I mean, you're arguing basically, uh, Lewis, rising CO2 is is a disaster for for us, even if it's not quite as dramatic as some of the other stuff. We did a show uh, last year, actually, I think it may have been a couple of years ago, in January 2021 with Chris Goodall who has a book out on um, a zero-carbon future, what we need to do now. He talks about turning this issue into a centrist one politically. What's your view on the role of politics? I know you're, a, and, and this hardly comes as a surprise to anyone, that you're not a big fan of Trump or his administration, which no, on this show, yeah, and with our audience goes without saying. But can this issue become a, a centrist one that will attract moderate Republicans as well as moderate Democrats? I guess I don't ever think
1: of science as being political. It's just it's just what it is. It's facts. If you if you you need a you need a structure, a political structure where you can look at facts and come up with, with different ideas, but we don't seem to have that anymore. We seem to have facts and alternative facts. It doesn't work that like that. I can, you know, Gravity works whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Evolution works what, whatever your political affiliation is. <laughs> the
0: Republicans that?
1: Well, I, and that's, that's the problem. This is This is where you have to be able to explain it in ways that folks understand. As in a
0: scientist... Right, and that's Goodall's we, point. So we, are you we, saying it can be done? I mean, is that you, what no, you're I'm trying saying, to it, do? I'm
1: saying it can be done. And again, this is not a, a one-size-fits-all solution. But one of the things I'd like to see happen... Is for scientists to take communication training so that we can explain in, in un- understandable terms what it is we're talking about so that it doesn't become this, um, this, this somehow uncomprehensible understanding of what climate change or what carbon dioxide is doing for plant biology, that we as scientists need to do a better job of being able to explain it in ways that people understand and they resonate with them and not in an ivory tower type of situation right and we
0: we've done well, actually there, a couple of shows I,
1: I, but he can't explain everything to everybody
0: right we, we've done a couple of shows about how climate activists and academics like yourself need to learn to to tell the story we did one with two popular writers Kerry Arsenault and uh, DeMuth um, uh DeMuth uh and and also with a Harvard um a, a, a Harvard literature expert. Um, so it's about telling the story, is it, Lewis? It's it's about telling the story. It's
1: it's not just exposition. It's not just providing facts. You need, to, you need to do a narrative where folks can understand it, where they put it in as part of their lives. When I first got my degree, my doctorate degree, I was full of vim and vinegar, and I would get out there, and i talk about ecology and environmentalism. And, uh, you know, maybe 10% of the, of the folks, you know, the ones wearing Birkenstocks in the back of the room got it. But when I started talking about, you know, if CO2 goes up, it's going to affect poison ivy. Oh, oh, I could be affected. Oh, you mean, I, oh, I didn't know about that. People resonate with stuff that they ha- are familiar with, that they've encountered. And then it makes, if it's personal, it makes a difference. And so looking at it from a public health point of view, is so important because everyone understands about pollen, everyone understands about poison ivy, everyone understands about nutrition. If you can put it in a platform that folks relate to, then you can change the political landscape. If all you're doing is showing a picture of a polar bear, and no offense to polar bears, drowning on the sea ice...
0: We don't have any polar bears in the audience. You're you're going to
1: get a few folks that will care about it, and and understandably, but that's not going to move that's not going to move the political dial.
0: What about the role of capitalism and enterprise itself, companies? Uh, We've done a number of shows about whether or not American capitalism can be an ally in the war against climate change. I think people on the left, like George Monbiat, are rather dubious. Others, like Bob Keefe, who was on the show, who actually runs uh, a non-profit which is supported by private enterprise. So we would say that, believes that American capitalism can be, and the free market can be an ally. What's your take? On it
1: absolutely, I mean, I can't remember the name of the Patagonia founder
0: who just turned over. His right, head. he gave all his money but, back.
1: I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, this is, it, it, when we're in a situation where the politics are so poisoned that you can't get the, the support from the federal government to do the kind of work that, that needs to be done, Uh, For example, it was pointed out that right now the National Institute of Health, which is the largest donor for doing um, health-related research, only has a few million dollars to do health-related to climate change. That seems absurd to me, but that's just the way things are. So if you're a private donor, a capitalist, and you think that this is something that needs to be looked at, uh, something that needs to be uh, funded, yes, and from a very basic point of view, When you look at what's happening globally right now, the number of individuals who are hungry and who are threatened by famine has never been greater. It's the highest it's ever been in my lifetime. We need to fund that the research, not just give the the funds and the the food necessary to um, address this, but we need the research to look at how the world is changing and transform how we provide food for the world how we do it when we do it how do we do it in a a sustainable way that will allow us to continue to do it when the population is 8 billion or 9 billion Um, those are the things that are of the utmost importance this isn't this isn't something that you're you know you have to worry about 20 years from now this is something that's happening now the the three C's that we call them the the COVID the the conflict the climate are affecting how people eat and the kind of food they have and how much food they have this is a basic concern a global humanitarian core level concern could we at least begin to address it please is it that hard that we need to 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 beg for money to feed starving children because they're being threatened by an uncertain climate that makes no sense to me it really doesn't this is something that should, at a political level, resonate regardless of which side of the spectrum you're on. The fact that it doesn't um, is one of my greatest concerns for whether or not we, as, as a species, will be able to survive in the long term.
0: Yeah, some, some people believe, he's been on the show, Charles Sable, who's a colleague of yours, I think, at Columbia University, believes that to fix the planet, we actually have to rewire... Ourselves and the World, uh, Fixing the Climate is his book. Uh, I'm not sure you're quite as radical as he is, Lewis. But uh, for people watching and who, who agree with you, and I, it's hard to imagine that people many will disagree, what, what, give me one thing that ordinary people can do to begin with this. It's not just buying an electric vehicle, isn't it? What, right. what, what What's the, the first step for people who care but who don't have huge amounts of money or time or power?
1: I think if one of the, the, the most fundamental ways that you can change the current situation is, and I, and I this seems kind of weird, but I think one of the best ways you can do is to vote. And if you can influence the policymakers by voting your conscience with respect to climate change that will make a huge difference. Um, There are other ways as well, I think, and from a food perspective, I think how you buy your food under what circumstances, the kind of food that you buy can save a huge amount of carbon. And I think that looking at the, the carbon footprint or footprint of the food that you consume can also be a good way of doing it. But I think voting um, voting for people who believe in science, who who support science, as silly as that sounds, I think that's one of the ways we could begin to address this.
0: Well, the election's coming up next month, uh, or in a couple of months. So Lewis's uh, advice is is well taken. I, you might also read his new book, "Greenhouse Planet: How Rising CO two Changes Plants and Life as We Know It, Turning It, Turning Life Into." a bad science fiction movie and the planet into a b- bad science fiction movie. Very chilling. Congratulations, if that's the right word, Lewis, on the new book. What? Any other suggested further reading on this? What other books are accessible, tell the story in a way that everyone can understand?
1: I think anything by David Walker-Wells. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, her work uh, Merchants of Doubt is uh, first rate. Um Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, sci-fi bestseller
0: yeah yeah, Stanley Robinson comes up more than any other author actually in terms of recommendations
1: I I think that uh, any of those would be well suited to understand or get a deeper sense of what's happening